You're listening to Profit or Perish, featuring salon business strategist, author, and international speaker, Anthony Presoto. Anthony will tell it like it is, and you will learn what it takes to run a successful hair salon. Ready to get to business? Here's your host, international speaker and salon business strategist, Anthony Presoto. Hi, everybody. This is Anthony Presotto, and this is the Profit or Perish podcast, devoted to taking your salon business to the next level. It doesn't matter if you're an industry veteran or a new salon owner ready to open your doors for the first time. This podcast provides entertaining and informative information to help you take your salon from surviving to thriving. Today I had the opportunity to talk to salon and school owner Michael Levine from Canada and we discussed his blog post, How to Survive and Thrive as a Hairstylist and Salon Owner, which to date has had over 4,000 Facebook shares and about 17,000 reads. So I'll let Michael take it away and tell you a bit about himself and this blog post. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Profit or Perish podcast. Uh, how are you? I'm doing great, Anthony. How are you? Fantastic. I'm doing well too. I'd just like to say thank you for coming on the podcast. You're my first interviewee and the first podcast of our launch. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure, and that's really, really cool that I'm going to be the first one. I hope I, hope I don't sink the ship before it gets going. Uh, I'm sure you won't. <laughs> and that's always my, my fear of doing the podcast, but how bad can I make it? Um, so for people out there that don't know you, and I'm sure there might be a couple, can you tell us a bit about yourself, how you entered into hairdressing, and the company you now have, the Michael Levine Salon Group? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the general kind of company as a whole. That's the brand behind the brands. I got into hair to, um, well, I mean, it. it's kind of a, I mean, most of us got into hair for for a lot of the same reasons, and then of course, what we what we realized once we were in it was it wasn't quite exactly as what we'd imagined it would be. But basically, you know, I was at my I was at my hairdressers one day. I think I was probably maybe twenty or twenty two, maybe a little older. And I used to, I would find myself hanging around the salon. I would take a bus about an hour to go get my haircut, and. Um, one day it just sort of clicked that I, I mean, I was coming in and hanging around even when I wasn't getting my hair cut. And one day it just sort of registered that this guy, um, seemed to have the greatest life and all day long people were, you know, coming in and, um, women were coming in and giving him a kiss and inviting him to parties and bringing him a coffee. And, you know, and then he gets, you know, he does hair and listens to cool music and, um, and it just clicked, and I was like, "Wow, this this is what I want to do. This is a this sounds like the greatest life a guy could have." And uh, so that so I went to hairdressing school, and that was kind of why I got into it. I wasn't passionate about hair in any way other than my own hair, and I was sort of aware of hair. Um, you know, I definitely was was you know aware of noticing people's hair. I was obsessed with my own, but I, I didn't really think of it as a career or anything like that, or or it didn't even register as a job, but. Um, once it kind of clicked, I was like, wow, this could be it. Um, it's, you know, for me, I was a, I'm, I was a guitar player and I wanted to be a rock star. And I kind of thought the hairdresser thing had a little bit of that rock star element. Um, you know, and, uh, so I went to hairdressing school. Uh, your family comes from a family of restaurateurs. So? Yeah. My father was a restaurateur. Um, and, uh, he, 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 well, gosh, he was a, he was a pioneer in my city for, for food. Um, you know, he, he started sort of the first chain of, um, pizza places and then he started getting into more gourmet food and he started the, uh, the local wine societies and, 
Um, the Vancouver Wine Festival is the, the largest wine festival, I believe. It's certainly the largest in North America. And my dad was, he was the founder and the chairperson for the first 10 years of that. So I had, um, I sort of experienced a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit growing up for sure. Obviously, hey, it's a very different career from that. Yeah, well, you know, there are some parallels certainly in the in the restaurant industry and the salon industry. And I think um, I didn't realize that necessarily being the beginning of, of my career. Um I didn't notice, I didn't really recognize those similarities until I um, opened my first or maybe my second salon, probably my second one. Um, yeah, it, there's there's actually a lot of similarities. And I had grown up in the restaurant industry. My father was out of restaurants by the time I was probably 13. Um, he had actually, we had a very, very bad recession here and he had, he had uh, fallen into uh, bankruptcy during the recession. And... Um, you know, I got my first job in a restaurant. I started working at McDonald's when I was 13 years old. And uh, I worked in restaurants from the time I was 13 until, well, until I went to hairdressing school. So I'd kind of worked my way up from, you know, the lowest of the low on the totem pole into running a catering department at a hotel. Um, I'd just been doing it for, you know, for 10 years and, and working in the service industry before I ever picked up scissors. Now, you've expanded from being a salon owner into a school owner. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, I'll just, I'll sort of give you a little brief rundown of the progression of our company. Um, Basically, I'm, you know, I went to hairdressing school, um, became a hairdresser, realized that what hairdressing school had taught me was very, very little. Um, I graduated hairdressing school thinking I I was good. And because that's the line that they had told us during school. And I graduated and got into the real world and spent about a year working at a salon. Now, you know, unfortunately, it's a little easier to get a job as a guy um, than it is as a girl. And at the time, I was kind of cute. And so I got a job at a really good salon and they, you know, they chucked me on the floor right away. And uh, and I spent a year absolutely faking everything. I graduated hairdressing school without ever having put a foil in hair and without ever um, I had no idea how to cut hair. Other than a little old lady, you know, bubble cut, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The, yep, yep. You know, the that set and the blowout. Exactly. That's all I knew how to do. So I faked it for about a year before I thought, gosh, I, I have no clue what I'm doing. And it's, you know, it causes me stress and I suck at it. And I don't want to go through this industry sucking. I want to be good. So I quit that job and I got a job as an apprentice at a, at a very, very happening salon. And it was one of these kind of right place at the right time sort of salon situations where this salon was blowing up and I walked in right at the exact moment that they, that uh, somebody like me could take advantage of that. And, uh, and I've just fell into this really, really cool culture. And so I worked at this salon company for a couple of, well, for three years and about a year and a half into it, the woman who I considered my mentor um, got a job offer with corporate Aveda to move to Minneapolis and then subsequently moved to New York. So I, Aveda ended up asking me to take her place in Western Canada as an educator. And at this point, you know, I've really only been doing hair for 18 months. So I was certainly not qualified, um, you know, for the job. But again, you know, I was, uh, I was decent. I was a, a fairly decent speaker and years of working in the service industry. I had a, a degree of confidence in my, um, in my ability to convey a message. So Aveda, um, you know, they spent a lot of time flying me back and forth from Minneapolis to Vancouver. And I sort of lived there about 
anywhere between eight and 12 weeks a year for a couple of years doing um, training under some of the best hairdressers in the world. And it really, really accelerated my career. Um, it accelerated my skill set. And I was sort of around some of the best hairdressers. Some of the most famous hairdressers in the world were at the, in the world today were the people that were training me when I was at Aveda, you know, 17 years ago, um, before they were sort of really well known. And, uh, so, you know, one day I had one of these situations where I, I was dating one of the girls at the salon and uh, had a situation where the salon owner was acting like a complete jerk. Am I allowed to swear? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to keep it to a minimum, but sometimes things slip out. Um, the salon owner was acting like a complete jerk and he, he was kind of going a little bit bananas on everybody and myself included as well as um the girl i was dating and you know he had her in tears he had been yelling at her for something and and he had humiliated me in front of a client one day and uh and so i was like well screw it let's quit let's let's open our own salon so you know and it was and we were in one of these situations and i'll probably get to it a little bit later but um it was one of these situations where I was very, very arrogant. I had become very successful. And I still probably sucked as a hairdresser, but I certainly didn't think so at the time. And uh, so my wife and I found a, a grubby little spot in um, in a kind of pretty gross neighborhood, but it looked like it might be up and coming. And uh, we, we opened a salon on the third floor of this building right above a nightclub in a place in Vancouver called Gastown. And... Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty edgy area, pretty funky. And uh, we opened this salon and it it absolutely blew up really, really, really quickly. Um, you know, I was working a lot with Aveda still. So Aveda at the time, this is before Aveda. This is pre-Lauder Aveda. And okay, yeah. uh, they were really supportive of, of their salons. And they were because I was the Western Canadian educator, I was sort of one of the more in-demand educators on the West Coast. Um they were all the Aveda stores and were sending me every client. Any anytime somebody walked in, they were sending them to me, and um, I absolutely my career just took off, and, and then the salon just absolutely exploded, and uh, and it, you know we went from a two chair salon, and then a year later we opened, a, I think we opened a five chair salon about a block from the first one, and then I think three years after that we opened, we opened. Oh gosh, we had gone from like six hundred square feet to two thousand square feet. Um, and yeah, we opened this really big salon and, uh, and then things just sort of snowballed at that point. And that's sort of, that was it. And that was the progression. And, um, the progress, sorry, I, I skipped the whole point of the question was you asked me about <laughs> the school. So what ended up happening, we, we never hired people with a clientele. We were, uh, we were, my wife and I were busy hairdressers and we, you know, we'd bring somebody in here or there. Nobody lasted. You know, nobody, nobody survived with us more than six months. And we ended up, you know, finally this guy came from uh, Nova Scotia and I consider him, a, he's like family to me now, but a guy came in from Nova Scotia and he, he's a wonderful stylist and he became a very good friend of ours. And so he joined our team and then we just started hiring assistants and we would teach the assistants how to do hair based on my trainings with Aveda and what I had been doing um, what I'd been teaching uh, for this company that I worked at previous to my own salon. And I sort of developed my own education system. So I would teach these kids how to do hair and then we would give them a chair and then we'd hire somebody else. And eventually we had a, gosh, you know, we had like 12 people and we had never hired anybody with a book. And um, so we'd grown up to like 12 people and I was still getting a fair amount of support from Aveda. 
I have a totally crazy, super long, scandalous story where Aveda absolutely effed me over. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to talk about that. And well, it's a really long story and it's probably not that interesting. But anyways, um, so we opened this big salon. We started taking off and we became, you know, a little bit of the toast of the town. And we were still running these very tight apprenticeships. And, you know, I'll tell you, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in Vancouver, there's very, very few people who actually, when they say they're going to, when they say they have apprentices, they don't really have apprentices. They just, you know, once in a while, it's like, come over here, I'll, I'll show you how to do, how I do a haircut. I mean, we had a, we had a system, you know, where we were marking people. They had to bring in a certain number of models. It was, you know, it was a given curriculum that they had to follow and they'd have to go through the curriculum twice, minimum twice before they would get a chair. And um, around this time in British Columbia, we became deregulated. I believe Australia is deregulated, right? Uh, what do you mean by deregulated? Well, we don't have licensing to be a hairdresser. No, we don't. We don't have licensing. Uh, our salons get licensed, and the you do a hairdressing apprenticeship or uh, a training at a school, depending on which way you decide to go, and you get a certificate to say you're a hairdresser. Oh, you know what? In Vancouver, in Can in British Columbia, you can buy scissors and then you're a hairdresser. <laughs> That's how it goes here. And so, that, that, that looks like how some of the hairdressers here actually operate as well. Exactly. And that is why I, I don't agree with regulation in any way because it doesn't matter regulation or not regulation. You know, 90% of hairdressers suck anyways. And, and well, well, 100% of them suck right out of school or in the beginning. But anyways, we didn't have regulation. So all of a sudden it freed us to be able to, to create hairdressers on our own terms and put them, give them chairs without ever having to waste our time creating or waste our time training them for a, a licensing exam. So you know, you know, I'll skip. I opened a bunch of salons, and and you know, I think we opened eight salons over the course of this this uh, existence. But eventually, I decided I wanted to get paid for teaching people. You know, I was teaching these. I was coming in on my time off, um, teaching these people how to do hair, and I was probably having maybe a 25% um, retention rate of these staff. And we weren't charging people for the education we were doing. I, I mean, I remember the one that really killed me. I had basically lost six months of my life because I had trained these four girls and every one of them quit. And it was just, and, you know, but after I had trained them, I, you know, after they, I'd spent all this energy on them and then they all left. And I thought, well, that's like six months of my life just completely gone. And, and I thought, I, I need to take, first of all, if I'm spending my time teaching somebody and creating aha moments for people and taking somebody, teaching them how to hold scissors and eventually helping them become actually very decent hairdressers, um, you know, I get emotionally attached to these guys. And it was kind of a little bit heartbreaking. It really, you know, it, I was losing all the sleep over it. And I thought, forget this. I want to get paid for this. I want to take my emotion out of it. I want to make it a business arrangement. I'll still care about these people. I'll absolutely love them perhaps, but they're free to do whatever they want and they have no obligation to me and I'm not going to have any obligation to hire them either. So we went about the process of opening a, a hairdressing school and that in itself was a huge pain in the butt. But, you know, we got the thing open and it was and it's taken off. It's done extremely well. And that's where I am today. That's fantastic, and, and I must say, uh, your your curriculum must be something spectacular because I've seen photos of the work that your students produce. Because that you have them do a photo shoot or final yeah. portfolio work. 
Yeah, you know what? I was doing. That's what I was doing all day today. I was in the studio. We have our own photo studio um, off-site. I had. I used to have a salon called Tao, and it was about thirty-five hundred square feet. And we had a portion of the upstairs we had turned into a photo studio. So anytime anybody wanted to do a shoot, we would do it there. And because my school, part of our curriculum is an editorial day, we were using it. And then when I closed that salon, and I I, I closed salons like you know like. <laughs> Like I change underwear. Um, and uh, so when we closed that salon and opened a different one, we didn't have room for a studio. So I had to get a freestanding studio, um, which I absolutely, I mean, I love. I've just, I just had an electrician in there the other day doing some work. Um, so yeah, there's a portion during our program where we, I think it's around the four and a half or five month mark of the program where we do a lecture on editorial um, how to create successful editorial. Then I tell them what my expectations are for their photo shoot. And then they they coordinate models, wardrobe, makeup. Um, they get one day in the salon to uh, to create a mood board and another day to, to, um, to, I guess, prep hair extensions, if that's what they're going to use. And then they come in and they spend a day in the studio with their models and that's that we, we did that today we shot six models and then what's really cool in that part of the program is once i once i get the lighting the way they want it um then i hand them the camera and so anytime you see an image from my school that's been shot by the student how awesome is that we want to take the mystery out of it because yeah. you know obviously yeah i've got a professional studio and i've got some you know i've got some good gear and i've got a nice camera but ultimately we all know um, that none of that stuff is super, super necessary to get started. You can do a lot with one light um, and and a decent SLR, and you can get a decent SLR for pretty cheap nowadays. And uh, so we want to take the mystery out of it and just get these guys really excited and say, wow, I can do this. Especially nowadays, nobody's held a, a proper camera. They, they look in the back of this thing like they don't know to stick their eye in the, <laughs> in the viewfinder. It's really kind of fun. And once, and you should have seen these guys today. It was like the, for some of them, they had never held a camera like this. And you know, within five minutes, they're directing the models, getting the looks they want. I just walk away. Once I see they're able to frame it the way I think, you know, then I can work with it in post production. I walk away and let them do their thing unless they need help. And it's really empowering for these guys. It's that, really cool. That is really an amazing experience. It's um, considering that yeah, I can understand why most of them wouldn't know how to use it between. Compact cameras, which I don't think have a viewfinder anymore, um, which I don't think anybody even buys anymore because their smartphones take all the photos they require for Instagram and everything else. So yeah. <laughs> handling an SLR is a different beast entirely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, what prompted that quit? That was um, I see the work that comes out of some of the schools here after nine months and I see what your students do after obviously four or five months in their editorial work. It's like night and day. It's uh, really? you, I would be – a shame to look at some of the work that comes out of here after students paying for nine months of education. Well, listen, I'm as much as the, uh, that's flattering. You're only seeing the best stuff. You probably see about. Uh, I only get to see the stuff which I assume would be the best the schools put out here. <laughs> really? And if it's not, they really need a lot of work on their marketing. <laughs> well, I'm only showing you the best of the best. You're you're about seventy five percent of the stuff you don't, you'll never see. <laughs> so it's. I do understand. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, even today, you know, there was, there was a couple of things that turned out really brilliantly. There's a couple that probably won't make their way onto my Facebook page. <laughs> you know. Judicious editing. Yes, exactly. Okay. Now I'd like you to share uh, 
an inspirational success quote that's sort of guiding you at the moment if you would do that for us, Michael? You know, this this is one that I always come back to. And because I'm I, like most salon owners, we're in a constant state of flux. And, uh, and the one that I absolutely love, it's the name of a book, actually. I have the book. Um, and it's what got you here won't get you there. And it just I absolutely believe this, um, you know, to, to my core that, you know, what got you here is, is only going to get you here. And you've got to change and adapt and adjust and it constantly adjusting. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one that I sort of always think about. And what that allows me to do, I'm a very, it's weird. I'm an extremely lazy business owner and people are always really surprised um, when I say that, but I am, I'm a really lazy person. And ever since I've had children, I'm a lot less involved in, in running my company. I mean, I run things from behind, from behind the scenes, but you know, half my staff never sees, never see me. I work behind the chair, I think 14 hours a week. I, I do hair in two of my salons. Um, but yeah, I was saying to my students today that my students see me more than my staff does. And that's probably a recipe for disaster moving forward. And I've got to have, I'm going to have to make some adjustments there. But um, it the the fact that I'm really, really dynamic now, um, I think I used to be really, really rigid when I first started out. But I've now sort of learned that to be an entrepreneur, you've got to be dynamic and you don't you don't have to resist and fight. Sometimes, you know, go with go with the flow. And, uh, you know, if there's if there's sort of change on the horizon, embrace it and try to take advantage of it. Um, rather than keep, you know, trying to paddle upstream. And I think I spent a lot of time paddling upstream. Even now, I mean, I've just had some bullshit happen in my, in the last 12 months of my salon ownership has absolutely sucked. And, you know, I've lost, I think, five master stylists out of one location, like just out of one location. So I've lost literally about $45,000 a month in revenue. And, you know, that's enough to absolutely destroy most businesses. Um, certainly most smaller ones. Mm. And, you know, and for me, it's just like, okay, so what am I going to do here? Because I know if I just rebuild a bunch of people to fill in those voids, I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels. It's one step forward, two steps back all the time. So I've got to change my approach. Now, I don't know what that approach is, but I've got a couple of ideas. Fantastic. Well, that, that you've answered the question I was going to ask you is, uh, could you talk about a stumbling block and how you've overcome it? And obviously that in the last 12 months has been a major stumbling block. And as you said, would for most salons be a death blow. Absolutely. And, and but as every owner will tell you, I've got so many friends that are owners and I know you've, I, I absolutely, I mean, I don't know your situations, but I guarantee you've had absolutely difficult adversity in your salon ownership. Um, you, who knows, maybe, are you going through one right now? No, I'm not. Actually, at the moment, oh. I'm, I now have what I call a lifestyle salon. My salon, I downsized. Uh, I got rid of most of my staff. I have a chair renter and I, I limit my hours I work. Uh, it's and there, That's exactly why you don't have problems. <laughs> Adversity, yeah. And, and we do. Uh, salon owners, I think we all experience similar things on various levels depending on the size of, of your business. You know, I've I've seen, you know, actually to come full circle, remember when I was when I was saying that story about how my former employer was acting like a complete asshole and going crazy. Yep. Uh, well, he had had a massive walkout 
And at the time I wasn't, you know, I wasn't maybe as empathetic as I, as I maybe am today. Um, you know, most hairdressers, I, I don't know, maybe I have a few people on my team. I think I have a few people on my team who, who truly care and who do, you know, hope things go really, really well for me. And that makes it sound like my team is like really horrible and they're not, they're <laughs> awesome. But there's probably more people who, there's a few people who care more than others. Um, but, you know, our, my, my old employer was just, was going through absolute bullshit. His, his situation was probably way worse than my last year. What happened with his, and this, we see this all the time in our industry. I just, I don't understand this, but whenever somebody leaves, and I shouldn't say whenever, but it happens a lot, happens far too often. When somebody leaves a salon, for some reason, they want to burn it down when they leave and they want everybody else to kind of, I don't know why, why this happens, but They'll say, oh, it's so much better over here. You should come with me. Um, and and they, uh, for some reason, they want to really stick it to the guy. And I'm sure you've seen this happen. I've seen it happen quite a few times. And this is what was happening to this guy. And this, this guy, you know, maybe he didn't pay quite as much as he could. But, you know, I certainly don't have the same views on uh, salary that I did at the time now that I'm an owner. But, um, you know, and maybe he there were certain aspects that he could have improved. But... He's just a he's just a person trying to get along and you know building beautiful salons and giving people an opportunity and then uh, you know he gave somebody an amazing opportunity and she absolutely screwed him over and tried to destroy his business for some reason when he thought they had left on really good terms so we were kind of in the middle of that and now I'm really sympathetic to uh, what he was going through at the time was you know he was probably going absolutely nuts thinking his his business was crumbling and it kind of was. So now I'm, I'm much more understanding of it. But um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I've been going through some craziness where, you know, you'll get somebody who will say to you, say to you, totally on board, you know, let's, let's do this. And then, you know, a month later, the person's like, oh, I'm doing, I'm leaving to go do this. Or somebody will, you know, I had one the other, I had one not long ago that absolutely broke my heart. Like, it's a girl I put a lot of energy. I didn't expect her to be with me forever, but I sent her to Sassoon's four fucking months ago. You know, <laughs> all expenses paid. And it's like, if this was in your head, you know, don't put your hand out. You know, I know for me, I get offered things all the time. You wouldn't believe the things I turn down, the trips that I get turned down from people who, um, from people who want to do business with me. And I will not, so I will not take anything from somebody unless I intend on doing business with them or unless I currently do business with them. Because, I, first of all, I think it's disgusting to try to, like, lead somebody on and take advantage of things. And I know for me, I'm a very – I'm a kind of a – you know, I'm not – somebody could take me on the most amazing trip and put me in the greatest education in the world. And that's not going to sway my opinion in any way of whether I want to do business with them. So for me, I've, I, you know, I put my hand back in my pocket and it's like I'm not interested in taking from you. I'll come on my own dime and evaluate things. Um, or if I'm actually legitimately interested, then yes, you can you can take care of me. But if I'm not interested, then I absolutely won't take advantage of things. And I just, I don't know, I guess I expect people to have a similar moral outlook. Like this person who took off, like I love this girl, I created a job for her. And you know what, I hope none of my employees, cause they'll be all like bitter that I'm, that I'm throwing under the bus, but fuck her. Um, and she, uh, you know, I, so she was getting paid a fairly decent salary, probably more than she should have for work that she was doing. She did some nice, some really good things. But, you know, for me, if I had taken that trip, it would be like, I'm going to delay doing my thing and give this person a year of my life. 
you know i'm gonna there's a certain i have a kind of a i, I just i have a bit of a moral um, compass that says if you're going to give me something you're going to get a certain amount of time out of me and i'm not really big on contracts or anything like that but i may have to go that route one day um where it's like if i send you off an education then you're going to have to give me this amount of years you have to pay this back i don't know i just i don't i want to believe the best in people and i want to believe that that people you know kind of want to be a part of what i'm doing too and i don't know it's a it's a tough it's a thankless being a salon owner can be a very very thankless existence and uh and i you know hairdressers don't know until they've walked in those shoes and i can safely say there's not a hairdresser well, most hairdressers, um, I've I've done most things that most hairdressers have done at this point in my life. You know, I've been a platform artist. I've I've been a disgruntled employee. I've been a junior stylist trying to claw his way up. I've been the master stylist who's the top earner in the room, feeling underappreciated and underpaid. I've sort of done it all. And man, nothing puts it in perspective like once you open your own salon and you start having employees. Uh, that's definitely right. I um. Uh, having trained apprentices over the years and my current uh, chair renter is an ex-employee that left on good terms to open a salon, lasted just over a year, decided she didn't want to be a salon owner anymore. No, it's it's amazing how quickly people forget and how quickly people, you know, it's, it's I don't know, I don't know if it's just the, the world we're living in today, you know, I don't want to sound like a cranky old bastard who's <laughs> saying kids these days, you know, because people have always been saying kids these days, but I don't know, salon ownership, you're dealing, it's, you're dealing with a really, I mean, you know, I'll tell you that I have a whole thing with, with salon ownership and employees. And this is, it's really an, an interesting um, problem that the entire industry has. And, and it's something that we create as an industry that we're creating these problems for ourselves. And the issue is the most successful hairdressers are the ones that become uh, the, the ones that take control of their own lives. And, and it's because this industry is based, you know, success is based on, uh, it's a hundred percent based on your choice and how much you go out and make things happen for yourself. As an owner, we shouldn't really be surprised then when our top people turn around one day and want to do their own thing. Right. Because their success. Yeah. I mean, their success is based on being entrepreneurial. Basically it's their business. They're building behind their chair. So, you know, we, we reward them in one way and, and, and all of these things. But at the same time, it shouldn't really come as a huge shock when they do turn around and say, well, I want to go do my own thing because, you know, especially for all of us owners, we, we did the same thing. We all wanted to go do our own thing at some point, you know, we all at some point looked at our paycheck and said, you know, I'm bringing in double what I'm getting here. This dude's taking half my money and I want to do my own thing. You know, we quickly learn, but as you know, if, if you've got children, you know, you know, you can't tell them once one, you can't tell a teenager anything. They have to learn it for themselves. And I think most hairdressers are like, you know, precocious teenagers with a bit of success and uh, and they have to learn these things for themselves. I know for me, once I opened my salon and I had a few employees, I went out of my way to go find my old employer, I hung around in front of his salon until he was leaving one night. And he probably thought I was going to do a drive by. But anyways, <laughs> he uh he came out and I, and I got out of my car and I walked over to him and I just, and I just laid on a big apology and I just said, I had no idea. I didn't understand anything of, of what was going on back then. I see things so differently now and I just want to thank you for everything you did for me. And I apologize for everything I did, um, you know, as a shitty employee that, that probably really hurt your feelings. 
And, you know, at the time, I don't know if he really cared. He was still probably like, well, screw you. But, you know, today, I think, you know, today we've, we've talked and we're actually, you know, we hug and these things, but, uh, it's, it's profound, man. Like once you, once you wear the, the salon owner hat, I don't know that I would recommend it to too many people. I, I, I don't, I, I, I try to discourage anybody I can from being a salon owner. It, uh, it takes a very special um, person to want to be a salon owner. You just don't. The realities of it are so far from what an employee sees. Yep. And uh, and that leads us into the next, the main reason for for this podcast is you wrote a blog post on all this. Yes. Called How to Survive and Thrive as a Salon Owner and Hairstylist. Now yeah. you've had over three thousand Facebook shares. And four, four thousand now. It just came up, and today I have had a huge. I don't know what happened today, but I'm now at I'm and now at I think sixteen thousand views and four thousand shares on Facebook. My goodness, it's crazy. I don't know what happened today. Biggest day in the his biggest day of the blog was today and yesterday, and I have no somebody important must have shared this thing. <laughs> that is fantastic. So. What prompted it? Um, basically, like I'm a, you know, I, I'm a big talker, and because I because of my school, I go and I give lectures on success. Um, you know, I'm a frustrated person, so I, I see, you know, I've got some really really successful hairdressers working for me, and some that aren't as successful. And I see the things that the people who are successful do. And I mean, for everybody in my company, they've all sort of apprenticed under me at some point. Some have listened to me, some haven't. Um, and, uh, so I'd had this really crap year of, you know, of losing these people. And if you talked to me a year ago, I was flying high, man. I was ready to open another salon. Like I am opening an, another school right now. Uh, but I was ready to open another salon and I was, I was feeling pretty good about things. And, uh, and after I lost the first guy, I was like, oh, screw him. You know what? We actually made more money when he was gone because, or the you know the, the client stayed the first two didn't affect us but eventually what ends up happening is you refer those people's clients to somebody and then that person leaves and this happened to us where we lost where people were referred to three different hairdressers who all left and yeah. the, eventually the, the the client is going to be like i'm out of here so our numbers have absolutely dwindled this year it's been a brutal year numbers wise so, you know, I look at, you know, I look at my banking and all of this stuff and I'm dealing with this nonsense and I'm losing sleep because, um, you know, people in their really early 20s are affecting my life in a really negative way, which, you know, it really shouldn't be that way. Um, and uh, so I just started hammering out this, this blog post based on some of my thoughts and some of my kind of screw you's and... Uh, and I kind of, you know, I've, I've edited it a couple of times. I've added a couple of things and changed a couple of things because it's a bit wordy. Um, but, yeah, so I put this thing out and uh, for some reason it just just absolutely kind of, as soon as I put the link up, it just started taking off. And, it, yeah. Well, it is, it is a bit of a long post, but it is definitely well worth the read. And I'll put a link back to the blog post itself so that listeners can read it uh, in the post show notes. Um, cool. But it, it, it's just amazing. It, it really, I think, cuts through a lot of the crap that we hear in this industry and tells it like it is. 
Well, I'm glad. Which I think a lot of people are really scared to do. You know, they like to tell it as it is, but they really and, – um, and it's not like you're in here completely bashing anybody either. You're just putting it very simply, your thoughts. Yeah, and you know what? And whether whether people care to believe or, you know, to agree with it, most people will find a few things in there that they that they absolutely disagree with. And I've seen a lot of comments where people will say, I agree with everything but this. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's cool. And, and – I'm not saying I'm the end all and be all of, of, I'm just saying what I've observed and I've been a pretty successful salon owner. Um, wouldn't say financially, um, you know, I'm not driving the car of my dreams and, uh, I have to live 45 minutes away from where my salons are so I can afford a house. Uh, I live in a very expensive city, but you know, a lot of people will say, gosh, you got four salons and, um, you know what you're, you've got to be rich. And it's like, no, man, I do the salon thing mostly because I really get off on op- opening salon. I get off on designing hair salons and giving people jobs and, uh, and turning people onto the industry. But, um, yeah, so I wouldn't say that I would say that, uh, the, the post is more based on what I've seen and what I experience as an owner. And I think part of it was a little bit of a shout out for the, for the owners that try to do things right. You know, we, somebody, I get a lot of people commenting on my blog who are saying, thank you so much for writing this. I needed this. This was really inspirational right at the exact, the right time that I needed it. There's a lot of people out there um, who try to do things in an ethical way. You know, one of the things that I really touch on in the blog for me as, as salon owners is don't raid other salons for your staff. It's just a really shitty thing to do. And your success is now coming at the expense of somebody else. And that somebody else, if that somebody is me, you know, I went, I go to a great expense and personal, not just expense, but, but emotional expense. And I love people and I wouldn't teach people if I didn't love them. I, I, I lose so much um, money and time and energy on people because we don't hire people with a clientele. We hire them straight out of school, every one of them. We give and we give them a chair and we develop them, you know, so we put them in weekly classes and and all of these things. So by the time they start to build up a book, then you've got some asshole salon owner down the block who's trying to lure away your your staff when I'm the one who's taken all of the risk and put in all the energy and they want to reap the rewards. Well, fuck you. That's my that's my feeling. And and, you know, maybe you can sleep at night, but, you know, I'm not. Because you're affecting my livelihood. And, you know, I got children. Like, I'm trying to take care of people and trying to do things in an ethical way. I know I can sleep at night knowing there's not a single salon owner in my city that could say a single bad thing about me that I've directly done. They'll probably say all sorts of bad things about me if they've, you know, ever met me. (laughs) Or maybe they've heard something bad about me. But there's not a single person that will have one direct interaction with me. That they'll that they'll say was negative or that I've affected their business in a negative way because I just don't get involved in those things and and especially what's I've, I've never have but now that I have a school I'm not interested in making enemies of people you know I've got a, a, a friend of mine who owns a who owns a couple of salons in their chair rental salons and he's doing big big booming business and you know he's got one of my formers or maybe a couple of my formers I'm not sure um, and I don't really care but you know a hundred percent of this dude's success comes from the, the misfortune of somebody else, right? Because when you own a big chair rental salon, all you care about is getting your chairs rented out. Well, those people are coming from somewhere. So, and they're trying to bring their book with them. So not only is that, per, is that company losing a stylist, they're also losing their book because, you know, uh, 
they're expected to be bringing a book to a chair rental salon. And I just, I don't know, man, I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And it's my, the road that I take is probably a much slower road. And I know business is war and all of those things. And I've, you know, I've read, uh, I've read um, plenty of, of business books where, you know, it's, you know, the, you know, there's a really great one called the 48 laws of power, which is, you know, basically it's really self-serving and do your own, do things for yourself and screw everybody else. And I just, I'm not really interested in being that way uh, as an owner or as a person. I just kind of want to do my own thing and march to my own drummer. And which is also why I'm fearless with saying this thing, because it's kind of cool because I'm in a position of where I'm in a position where basically every product company wants to do business with me. And, you know, if I say something and we'll talk about locks of beauty later on, if I say something bad about the company that I currently buy color from, uh, you know, it's like I got four more companies that are that are trying to outbid each other to give me a cheaper discount, you know, off, off of what other salons pay. So I'm not too worried. I, I can afford to be a little fearless now with what I say. Most definitely. And, and I, I found that as well. I um, I have one company that supplies me and another company at the moment wanting me. And it's like, well, you know, neither of them really impress me, but I'm happy with where I am. But it's good to have that there. And, and it, it gives you a sense of security um, not being tied up to a company. Yeah, well, and that's, I'll tell you, and this is probably is, well, I mean, you know this because you and I have been talking for years about this. But oh, yeah, we were, it's been... Uh, since the beginnings on Hair Maven, which was 2005, 2006. Yeah. Talking about product and stuff like that. Well, you know, I because I was a big Aveda guy and Aveda threatened to sue me a couple times, Aveda did some silliness to me. Um, and I probably was involved in it as well. And you know what? I actually sought out the Canadian distributor of Aveda one day and I did say to him, I'm still not 100% sure what I did wrong, but I did actually find him and I said, I apologize for whatever I did to cause my end of the breakdown of our relationship. Um, and, uh, cause I do, you know, it's two sides to everything. But anyways, when I saw what Aveda was doing as a brand, um, you know, the first thing I did, was I started my own product company. I was like, I don't want to deal with a bunch of other sales reps trying to get my business. So we started our own, um, product company. And, uh, I think we've, we're on our third different name of that product. But, you know, it's starting to, starting to become something. And we actually, we move a, a fair amount of it in our salons. And now it's in my schools, which is kind of neat because that's all my students get to work with is my product. And it's kind of cool because, you know, I'm kind of writing my own ticket. And maybe one day salons will carry my brand. That, that's fantastic. And, yeah, I've been along as you've developed the products. And uh, currently, the current product company name is Product. Yeah. And, which I think is just absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you. Um when you first launched it, I was discussing with a brother who's a stylist as well, and yes. we just loved the name. It was just – we thought it was just sheer genius. Yeah, productforhair.com. I'll, I'll put a link to that into the show notes as well so that um, anybody within the area can get in touch with you about that. Now, something really interesting has been happening in the far, past few days within the hair industry and beauty industry, I guess, and that's Loxa Beauty. What are your thoughts on it, Michael? I truly don't care. And I, you know, for me, there was a, you, were you on behind the chair way back when we, when we all kind of got kicked off? No, I came along just mm -hmm. after that. Okay. Well, there was, you know, there was behind the chair used to actually have a really active forum. Um, this is for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about behind the chair.com. 
before they were corporate shills um, and before their, their forum was so heavily moderated, it used to be a hotbed of awesome activity. It was very much like Harebrained is. And Harebrained is fantastic. Um, but where it was kind of a free-for-all and there were some amazing arguments. And you can still go back in, in, the, uh, in the backlog and read a lot of those old, old debates. And I was one of the loudest, probably most obnoxious people on there. And a bunch of us um, got kicked off, you know, for, for saying things that eventually, I mean, I'm pretty sure Russell got kicked off. Because as behind the chair sort of became more about advertising dollars, they didn't want people bad-mouthing. So, you know, you know, even back then, and this is, you know, over probably 10 years ago, I've, I've been calling the diversion thing a lie, you know, right from the beginning. Um, and so I've never believed in diversion in any way. I think it's absolute bullshit. I, the only thing that I believe in diversion is for – there's only two companies that I believe actually are diverted, and that's Aveda and Bumble and Bumble. And the only reason I believe those guys are because I've been on the receiving end of their um, distribution and it's extremely tight. But anybody who's sold product in a showroom kind of where a showroom kind of warehousey sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, you can't tell me that that product is is um, that they that they truly care about diversion or else they wouldn't sell it in the way that they do. So even if it's being diverted, I mean, they're certainly not trying to tighten things up because I, my feeling is that they just think sales are sales. So this locks of beauty comes along and they're you know, for those who don't know, it's a it's a front for BSG, which is Beauty Systems Group in North America. Are they are they out your way, too? No, no, they're not. OK, well, these guys are incredibly powerful. As I recall, I'm not even sure were they going to buy Regis or Regis was going to buy them. Something was Some, something like that. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of money here. Um, and these guys have distribution rights in North America for most, well, gosh, I would say all of the major brands, certainly all the brands that are owned by drugstore brands. And that's where this is what, once drugstore band, brands started buying up hair care, professional hair care, that's when the diversion story stopped holding any water. Because it's kind of hard to imagine that Procter & Gamble or L'Oreal, or Estee Lauder, or Shiseido truly care about where their product is being sold. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine that they would. As long as it's being sold. As long as it's being sold, because these guys, I mean, somebody like Procter & Gamble, that they're so diverse, probably 98% of their business is coming through drugstores anyways, and certainly far exceeding professional hair care. So it'd be hard to imagine that they would really care if they increase... Um, their sales by selling to drugstores where they're already selling so much product anyways. I just don't buy it. So, you know, I, I wrote a, a thing today on Facebook. I write too much. I should probably do more things, but I write too much. I like writing. Um, where, you know, I think what ended up happening, the life cycle, or not the life cycle, but the way this whole thing started was there probably was a legitimate degree of diversion, um, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. When Aveda got sold to Estee Lauder, and then Aveda started opening their own lifestyle stores where now all of a sudden it's the, the first, you know, the first publicized thing where we're selling professional product outside of the salon, which is really what our thing as hairdressers has always been about. It's got to be sold in a salon. So Aveda was the first one that sort of changed that. And I think then Aveda really quickly realized, hey, you know what, this, this, you know, there was a little bit of resistance. People are upset. We've closed a few accounts and lost a few accounts, but... Ultimately, it didn't hurt our bottom line, and we're selling more product through our store 
And because the stores are owned by the distributors or by corporate Aveda, they're cutting out the middleman. So they're selling it at, at, whole, at retail pricing, but they're not, they're not purchasing it for wholesale the way a salon is. So they're actually making a lot more money than the salon makes on that same product. Right? Right. And uh, so then Aveda did this. And then Bumble does it. You know, obviously Bumble's an Estee Lauder company as well. Bumble does it as well by going into Sephora and they bypass salons as well. And I think that that these other guys who are all owned by Procter and Gamble and Shiseido and uh, and uh, L'Oreal are like, hey, wait a minute, we don't even have to lie about this anymore because the the sheep hairdressers are not going to actually do anything about this. Aveda sales haven't been hurt. A Bumble sales hasn't been hurt. So I think this is really they've seen that there is no downside to doing this. They can reach the the market that they want, and the hairdressers aren't going to do anything about it. So that's kind of where I think this has come about. Now, for me, I don't care. I use Wella Color. Uh, I like Wella Color, but you know, I'm I'm of the belief that it's the hairdresser who makes the product. And you know, I'm as a hairdresser, I you know, I could go into the into the grocery store and purchase you know, a box of color and probably get pretty good results out of what I get out of the grocery store. I don't really believe that, you know, professional hair color is all that different from like, I think they're all sort of in the same universe. And so, you know, we do, we do business with who we choose to do business with. I would, I would say there's a lot of people that probably are terrified of using a different color line because, and you know, because they've not really been educated to re to um, trust their own abilities as a hairdresser. So, and that's really what a lot of these companies want. You know, they want you to think that you can't live without Goldwell Color or you can't live without this, which is insane to me. And, and I think uh, that's tremendously true. Uh, it, I, I feel the same way. I could get the same results with whatever I want and maybe not quite as good. That, yeah. You know, that you have to learn with experience about a certain shade, yeah. you know? Yeah. But at the end of the day, um, I think it's soap is soap. Yeah, yeah. And, you know what? That's where I, I am too. If I got on and started telling my clients, like a girl on Facebook who only washes her hair with baking soda and it was the greatest thing, my clients would probably adapt that. Yeah. If I then told them uh, I'm a Paul Mitchell salon at the moment, but if next month I decided to become a Lanza salon, that Lanza was the product, they would buy that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, no matter how many of these companies open up online and sell, I really don't think it makes a big difference to the majority of salons because I think the majority of salons are poor retailers. Uh, and they tie too much of their education and belief into the company. And the salons that are good retailers, that it may hurt, will be smart enough to move on to something else. I would totally agree. And, I, and you know, to be honest, I don't think any of those brands, I mean, okay, so KMS has been doing some good things lately. Um, is Paul Mitchell on there? I didn't see them actually. Uh, I don't know. I haven't. I just got my password through today, so I have to go and have a look. But I, I've got a feeling they might be. Yeah, well, I guess anything that BSG distributes. But yeah, because I don't carry any of those brands, and yes, I do use Wella Color, but I don't, I'm assuming they're not going to be selling Wella Color. But what my prediction is that they're going to play everything above board and do exactly what they say they're going to do for the first few months, maybe the first six months. And then we're going to start to see sales happening. And we're going to start to, this is my, my feeling that all of a sudden the pricing between, wholesale and retail, that line is going to start to blur. And I think they'll end up doing sort of clearance sales and things like that. And I, and I fully expect that consumers will be able to start buying certain things, not everything, 
but there will be enough sort of things that are on discount that they'll be able to buy things that at, at more or less wholesale pricing um, based on sales and things like that. And, and then the other thing that we all know, every one of our clients as hairdressers knows somebody that used to be a hairdresser that maintains a hairdressing license so they can buy wholesale product, right? Exactly. So those people will all get count. Oh, do you want my password? This is going to happen. You know, so there is going to be really very, very little control here. And I don't think and the company, I don't think the companies care, to be honest, because they, they know that they're going to sell more product. Um, somebody, had, uh, somebody had written a post on Facebook where they had said something like, we need to, to wise up because salons don't retail well enough and, and salons are only accounting for 20% of retail sales. Well, if, if these companies are finding retail sales outside the salon, well, that's where the problem is in the first place because they're not supposed to be looking for retail exactly. sales outside yeah. the salon. These are supposed to be salon-only products as far as for the consumer. And so if they're saying, well, we're, we're getting 80% of – we're only selling 20% of product through salons, it's like, well, that's not the salon's problem that, that you have gone outside of the salon and then found that the grass is greener over there. Well, then don't expect the, the hairdressers to support you through this. I really hope that that um, that salons will wise up and get behind products that, you know, that are not owned by these big companies because, you know, as my, I don't want to badmouth the big companies because, hey, you know what? They see, they see where money is to be made, so they get into it. Of course, why not? But, um, you know, so I would never fault those guys for doing it. But the hairdressers that believe... Once a product has been sold to one of these companies, it's the beginning of the end as far as being a salon-only product. And we've now seen it. The proof is there. So I don't know. If I was looking to carry a brand and I wasn't, you know, and I didn't find that productforhair.com appealed to me, <laughs> um, then I would probably be looking at like a Kevin Murphy or a Davines or something. But then also understand that when those guys sell, which they probably will at some point, um, be ready to jump ship. The, I really, really struggle with the idea of getting clients hooked on something, though. You know, we carry Orbe in our salon, and we carry our own brand. And I really, really struggle getting. I mean, you know, I'll probably dro- I'll, I'll be dropping Orbe at some point. I'm sure very, very soon because I, you know, I use I use a product company as a means to an end. Um, but you know, I don't want to get I don't want to get my clients too hooked on something because I know I'm going to drop it at some point. So I don't know. I would recommend people do their own brand, actually. That's what I would do. I think what hairdressers tend to forget is that the business we're in is hair and it's and it's our skills and our services that we offer. And if you tie your branding to a company, at somewhere along the line, you're going to be very disappointed. Absolutely. Uh, if you tie your branding to yourself, you've got nobody to disappoint you but you. That's true. But, you know, I, I think if I was, I really do like the Aveda model. And it's weird because, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with them. But, I, you know, if I was to to tie my, my brand to something, it would probably be Aveda again. And mostly because I think, you know, first of all, Aveda salons tend to do good numbers. And if you just kind of do whatever they tell you to do, you'll be okay. If you're not overly entrepreneurial yourself and you're okay with, yes, I want to own a salon, but I don't want to do too much thinking for myself, Um you know, that type of model is probably a really good one as well. And I do, I still do kind of, I don't know, very often I think, gosh, I'd kind of like to get an Aveda salon again one day. <laughs> well, who knows? My wife likes using Aveda, so <laughs> we'll see. 
Since 2010, I've been helping countless salon owners with one-on-one consulting and coaching. Time after time, it would be the same aspects of the business that the salon owners would need to address. In 2012, I teamed up with two other international business coaches, Karen and David Lynch. Karen and David and I share a commitment to a high standard of education and training for salon owners. They have produced some high-quality salon video training tutorials, which I have available on my website, anthonyprezotto.com. The beauty of these salon video training products is that they allow me to help a large number of people at a lower cost to the individual salon owner than one-on-one coaching or consulting. There is also the added benefit of having immediate access and the ability to review the training materials over and over again as the need arises. So don't forget to go and check those out at anthonyprezotto.com. Thanks for listening to the Profit or Perish podcast. You can find new podcasts every two weeks over at anthonyprezotto.com.